Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Chris Kaiser, Mike Buffy, and Killian Engler. Whenever I plan for the podcast, I always look through my Twitter feed to see what's new or something I think our listeners would find interesting. And we've done almost 100 podcast panels, and I came across a tweet that made me think about all our prior conversations. And sometimes I feel like we're talking in circles or spirals and he tweeted may you live old enough to sit through keynotes at tech conferences muttering we did that 10 20 years ago it's not that disruptive it's not that innovative it's not new it's just something you're too young to have heard of before and you think it's a novelty i'm wondering how true do you think this statement is because initially i thought he had a point but i also think that we're living in a different time when everything is connected, which makes security more complex. That also means we need more creativity and more novelty to solve some of the problems we're faced with. In your opinion, what has stayed the same and what's changed? Hi, this is Killian. So this is sort of an interesting topic because I've spent quite a bit of time the last uh, week or two doing some research for something I'm writing. And I've been really digging into the defense in depth design principle. And it's something that we talk about constantly on this show, having multiple layers of security and control. And as I'm doing research to um, write my thing here, I'm shocked at how often this is presented even in brand new articles. Like this is a novelty, like no one's ever thought of having multiple controls before. It's such a common thing, you know, the organizations are not going to not have a firewall and they're not going to have antivirus and some of these common things. But to read the way that some of these tech journalists and things like that currently are talking about it, it's like they've never thought of this concept before. Like this is something mind blowing to have multiple redundant types of controls. I think it's it's true, and I think it's really interesting that people are waking up to these concepts that have been around forever. This is Mike. I was just going to say, there's a phrase this makes me think of, which is that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed, which is that, you know, all this knowledge is out there, but, you know, in every single domain, this isn't just IT or just security. This is everything. Now there's so much information, and it's so easy to get into any particular niche and just go incredibly deep on that niche. And it's so hard for anyone to step outside of their area and not come off as an incredibly naive person who doesn't understand and know these things. And so, you know, I'm killing what you're saying, like tech journalists, like they don't understand like, oh, multiple controls. They probably just never thought of it because they were in another niche. If there's a twist to this, I think it's that I look back at all of my dumb decisions on like companies not to invest in because I thought they were doing trivial things or like goofy stuff that like, oh, that's the same thing as this, you know, what came before. And I think I've always undervalued the user experience in those situations where like I'm thinking even like back to when Blogger was a standalone thing before Google bought them like 10, 15 years ago. I'm like, oh, you just FTP up and change the files and it's no big deal. But it was a huge deal, you know? Or, you know, Twitter, like, oh, you could just write a Python script to like send that out to a bunch of people if you really wanted to update the status to multiple people. But that wasn't it at all. When I hear these new things, I, I try to think like, what are my blind spots? Like, what am I missing? It's not what's coming out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's kind of interesting what you said about how, you know, certain subs of people have very niche specific sets of information that they're working with. And you might think that somebody who only knows about one thing and then tries to move to a different area of knowledge is naive, but they're just getting into it. A lot of times the way that I view it is people are trying to find ways to piece together things that already exist in new and creative ways. You know, what might be old hat to somebody else might be in the right context, groundbreaking because you're just combining it with the right other thing that you happen to know about. Just a matter of piecing together disparate sets of knowledge to to figure out how they, they piece together and what might be, I guess, what might 
be gained from that combination. To speak more directly to the question about what kind of stuff is, is kind of coming back that we've seen a long time ago, I remember back in the day, people would be, you know, everybody had an RSA token, like a physical plastic thing in your in your pocket. You pull it out, you'd read the number off of it, you type it in, and that was your way of, you know, authenticating. And I, I hear about, you know, physical, it kind of a step up from that, but you know, those Ubico keys that people are talking about these days, where it's a physical key that you're putting, a USB key, but putting it into your laptop and having a physical object as opposed to different software options. I think it's interesting to see, and Killian is on the camera holding his up. And of course, how's it working for you, actually? Any good? I haven't actually set it up yet, and this might be a whole other separate topic of discussion, but it's one of those things that I got it basically because I got it for free to try it out. And it's one of those things is like, you know, I have multi-factor set up in a bunch of things, but it's like, uh, I'm not going into a place where I expect to be attacked. So it's like, is it really worth the extra hassle? Which is the funny part about it, because I love two-factor authentication. I think it's great. And just like Mike said, it's the user experience. It's solely a test for the most part, but that's kind of my thing is like, there are ways to do this, just like you said, the physical key or having the physical token. What's the trade-off in terms of usability? And I love the concept and I think it's a great concept, but what's the return for the additional investment, I guess? Well, the YubiKey is interesting because it is a different user experience. Like you plug it in and it just goes. It's not this separate SMSing you a four digit code that you're typing in. So yeah, you know, where all of that's moving to is I think the near field communication where pretty soon it's going to be, oh, you just have this little battery chip thing on your phone or on your uh, keys. And as long as it's nearby your phone and it's nearby your laptop when you're using it, it just works the same way as the YubiKey. So until that wireless is hacked and we're back at square one and then we need a whole new keynote. Even with the, the Google ones here, I believe they have that set up with, I don't know if it's NFC, if they have that built in Bluetooth. So if it's like a trusted paired device, it'll unlock you know your phone or whatever, or it won't make you put in the, the passcode if it's near enough to be connected. Thanks guys. If you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover great podcasts like ours. Well, another aspect of the old is new again, or it's never been that new. I also think that some articles tend to be a little clickbaity. For instance, there was one on how humans aren't the weakest link. It's the infrastructure and the title pretty much sums up what the author thinks. But then, of course, I read the article just to keep an open mind and realize that perhaps maybe because times change and technology has to change. So maybe our beliefs have to change, but the conditions of security are a little different now and the way we engage with users and ideas need to be a little different. How have your views on humans as the weakest link changed? I always have been the kind of person to emphasize the education of like the ground level user and how important that truly is. And while I'm not going to say that's incorrect anymore, I do think that we can't place to blame entirely on them too. There have been situations in which, you know, for instance, Equifax, you know, the users themselves have done nothing to endanger themselves. They've done nothing that would be, with the outcome being their fault. And it has been the infrastructure. It has been the company responsible for the data that made the slip up. And my fear is, as much as it is good to emphasize people having good practices on their own, it shouldn't be to shift the blame away from the companies. You know, it shouldn't be that, you know, look over here, this this person didn't have two-factor authentication on. There are situations in which, regardless of what an end user does, there's still a, an amount of corporate responsibility that has to go into it. So I'm not sure if it's 100% one, you know, one or the other. I think there's sort of a gradient there. I do think that we need to renew focus on making sure that the, the infrastructure or the, the, the companies responsible for, for the security are, are doing their due diligence as well and not shifting blame off to the individual users who might not be you know security experts themselves. I maintain that it is incredibly difficult to patch humans, that you know it's much easier to patch systems and update them and things. But once people are born and they're walking around in the world, it's very difficult to update them and to update them in mass, which is 
the education part of this. I definitely think humans are the weak point and that to the extent that in any system you can build around the weaknesses and user experience, you know, that's the most crucial thing to getting a secure system, that humans will always find a lazier way to do things. It's incumbent that you make the laziest way the securest way. I'll split the difference. I think it's definitely falls into both camps. I think Mike is entirely right insofar as the users tend to be the softest target in the sense that we want to, you know, be social, we want to interact. So we're vulnerable to those types of social engineering or, hey, you have this invoice you need to pay, click on it, exploiting that kind of flaw in our logic. I also think too that... Actually, you can just stop there, Killian. You said Mike was entirely right. So, I mean, you probably have just stopped entirely. <laughs> Podcast is over. Let's all go home. Yeah, we can take a break. We can get a cup of coffee. I like you know, it. Share two-factor authentication tokens. You know, be- That's great. But to Chris's point, kind of going back to the research I've been doing recently, we also have built all of this on top of a, a well, not really a sound infrastructure. So kind of in my research was going back to some like real old articles, you know, from Bruce Schneier. I like him as a, as a security researcher. He always writes interesting things. And I'm just going to quote it here because it was literally up on my screen on the other screen because um, I was writing something earlier. But he goes on to say, in theory, security software like Fire and IDSs are just after-the-fact kludges because the underlying operating systems and application software is riddled with vulnerabilities. And I think that's entirely true as well. We have this foundation that wasn't built on security. It was built on a much more open and trusting network, and we're trying to go back and retrofit it. So in both ways, I think humans are an easy attack vector, and the fact that these systems are so big and complex, we just keep building more on top of that fundamentally insecure groundwork. We have a lot of issues to deal with. So here's like a quick quiz. SSL, like how it's implemented on websites, is one of the most prominent security user experiences. Like everyone goes to different websites. Most sites are using SSL and Chrome in the last like six months has really changed how they represent that. And I'm just curious, like off the top of your head, like what does it mean if it's not, if there's a lock, but it's not green in your Chrome location bar? I can take a guess at it. I'm not entirely certain. I, because I saw that the interface changed and I'm going to guess that it probably means that there are both secure and insecure elements on the page and the entire connection might not be secure, but that's just a, a guess on how it's represented. But uh, as, as you ask this question, I'm compulsively checking the browser tabs I have open. That helps. <laughs> I mean, I I had always assumed that green would be sort of, I mean, they mean it to be green means go, obviously. I don't know if Killian's correct, so I'm clicking on a different one. It's an eye signal, and it actually says your connection to the site is not fully secure. So I'm not sure if the black lock versus the green lock is, is right. But I do know that I can click on that lock and figure out if the certificates are valid, etc. But at first glance, it's not super obvious what exactly that means to me. This is just something that I look at all the time for this stuff. But they rolled it back. So it used to mean green was secure, but of course, like any site can have an SSL certificate. They rolled it back to where if it's gray, it just means that it has an SSL certificate. So your communications with that site are secured, but that it's not trying to indicate like, oh yeah, throw your credit card in here, which is what people were thinking before. And I, I bring this up only in that it is incredibly complicated, all the different <laughs> stuff and it's in our face and it's still difficult to sort out, even as, you know, very competent people in this area. What possible hope do everyday people have if they're just trying to get through their day? So, Well, humans are also creating these updates too. So they're also... Yeah. And that was not to like minimize like all the changes with Chrome and the other browsers and how they represent secure connections has been a ton of user factors work. And I think it's improved a lot, especially in terms of not giving people a sense of security when there is not one, which was a really big issue before. So I, I think it's 
a challenging area, but I think it's an area that pays, you know, big dividends, like, you know, Chrome updates and half the world is suddenly more secure. So it, it's good stuff. It's just challenging. Since we're talking about Chrome, Google earlier this week lost control of several million of its IP addresses for more than an hour, and it got redirected to a Chinese telecommunications company. And there's a bit of he said, she said, where some think it's just an error and some are suspicious that it was an intentional state sponsored move. Describe what spoke to you when you were reading this article. My first thought is I'm so happy with my career path that I never have to deal with BGP. It is just a nightmare. And if you mess it up, all your traffic goes to China on accident. And that's my, uh, that's my, that was my gut feeling when I read this. I've done well. I've chosen never to touch these things. My reaction is similar to some of these other stories here is that a lot of these systems weren't ever built with security in mind. Um, there's a lot of trust uh, inherent to the system. And, you know, we're all, we're all accident prone. You know, let's assume for a second this wasn't malicious. There, you know, you can fat finger something doing the routing saying, hey, the quickest way to Google's over this way um, and route it through some Chinese telecom. And if their configuration is not set up properly, they could get that fat finger and replicate it as a trusted route potentially. And it shouldn't be this easy, I guess. Um, there's a lot of trust in the system is again, kind of very tenuously balanced, just assuming and hoping everything's going to go okay. The specific kinds of information that was rerouted makes it seem a little more suspicious, <laughs> obviously. But at the same time, it's a bit upsetting to read that if it wasn't intentional, that it was relatively easy for just to actually occur. That's what kind of scares me. Well, I think you have to make a distinction here that this was, as far as we can tell, this wasn't actually like a substitution where you thought your traffic was like staying in one area and then it, it was actually secretly being, it just blew up that like you couldn't reach Google, you couldn't do stuff. And maybe some searches were like sent, you know, all that was encrypted because that is all SSL, but it really looks like an error. And I think the biggest thing pointing to that is if you were really trying to steal and look at all this traffic, I don't think this is how you would do it. But that is the inherent problem is that, you know, this was done in an error. And again, it kind of blew up. It was very obvious. If you were trying to be sneaky about it, it seems like there is a way to do it. And there have been some instances recently that indicate that there have been potentially organizations that have been using this to snoop on traffic by exploiting the inherent trust in the system. I'm, I'm curious about this because if, if you're rerouting traffic like that to a country you're not expecting to, what are the regulatory ramifications of that. I mean, there's obviously certain kinds of information that can't leave the borders of a country legally or shouldn't be allowed to. I'm wondering what the outcome would be here if there's anything that should not have been, whether, you know, regardless of who looked at it, whether or not this information shouldn't have been sent from, say, Nigeria out to, to China in the first place. I think it's really hard to say without, like, very specific about what is being done. If there's an attack and a vulnerability that this exposes, you know, we're talking about people, like, actually looking at the data. I mean, the other type of attack is just the denial of service attack and that if, you know, you wanted to be malicious and like mess up another country's internet for a while, like BGP sure looks like a nice way to do that. Um, <laughs> heck, you can do it on accident on a weekend just for fun. There's all kinds of vulnerabilities. I think it's clear. We just need to restart the internet from the ground up. We'll just get a piece of copper wire. I'll string it to each of your guys' houses and we'll just start from there. We'll make a new clean internet without all this baggage. How am I going to verify that the other end of the copper wire is you, Mike? That's a good question. I guess we'll need a, a control piece of copper wire as well next to it. Nah, you, you tie a tin can to each end and you say, hey, Mike, can you go say Killian? And then that's it. And then you tie it back up again. I'll be like, recite me your 248-bit key. <laughs> DNA testing companies, they're trying to seek larger market share in the name of science, sell a product that's not quite ready yet because there's this idea in tech too that good enough is 
sufficient and ready to ship. Meanwhile, uh, a medical doctor at Harvard Medical School, Robert Green, he said that these DNA testing companies only look at a single piece of a much more complicated puzzle. And so how and how much your genes matter remains to be seen. And it's dependent on so many different other variables. And it's easy for these DNA companies to misrepresent the connection between your data and your intention and your desire outcome. And last week, we talked about how we can anticipate DNA companies to be regulated just like food and the FDA. But how can we apply what we do know about technology, business, and security with what DNA companies are trying to sell us? Because it's relatively new, but I mean, I'm just every single week we learn something new about what the promise of these new companies can do and they're leveraging technology, but at the same time, doesn't sound like it's ready for prime time yet. And then we, you know, we go into circles and spirals and talking about the same thing. And it seems like it's all just about the bottom line. We're seeing that with Facebook, even though Facebook isn't a DNA testing company. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's really about behaving like a responsible business. So in the specific case of the DNA fitness tests, I think what they're promising is that you have some certain amount of like fast twitch fibers versus long twitch. So maybe you're better at fast sports that need a lot of sprinting versus like long distance running. And that maybe if you can kind of find the right sport for your genetic makeup, you can do better. I am a little skeptical of this myself, but there may be some positive aspects to this. Those positive aspects may be placebo effects. I don't think there's a lot of data about this, but it's a mess. And I think there does need to be some regulation around the data. This is really health data. This is another one of those things that's maybe it's just skepticism for being in the security industry. But as soon as you see something that kind of makes a, a big promise, whatever it is, it's something to be skeptical about. There's no kind of panacea. There's no solution for everything. Um, this could provide maybe some useful information, but I think it lacks a lot of context that I need. You know, one, couple, two genetic markers. Maybe it could provide something, as, as Mike mentioned. Maybe it could be a placebo effect. But kind of making these types of claims and big decisions based on that is scary. And to connect directly back to security, think about, you know, defense in depth. Adding this one other piece of information might help. As the article mentions, you know, doing exercise is good. Doing more of one or more of the other, you know, you're still doing exercise. So the net benefit is is there. But putting all of your eggs in this basket that if I only do this one thing, it's going to solve all of my problems or make me the best whatever player. It's the same thing with security. Hey, I got this new awesome technology. It's, you know, it's going to solve all of my problems. So I won't have to invest in everything else. It seems a bit foolhardy, I guess, if you put it in those terms. Well, Killian, my DNA indicates that my eggs are not going to be in a basket. There will be basketless eggs. And so I'm trying to optimize for that. I'd appreciate you having a little more sensitivity. I'm not sure I can top that. <laughs> I have a, a very specific reaction to this. You know, I, I, have, I have a biology background and like I get I get why people will get excited about this. My fear is that this might be effectively you know, like digital snake oil, like the idea that people will say, you know, give me your personal information and I'll analyze it and then give you something back that'll help you, you know, change your life or improve your health or something like that. I hope there's regulation around this. I don't know the the ins and outs of it, but I hope this is the sort of thing where people who are doing this are, are vetted and have the ability to actually make that discernment. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Well, here's like Chris. So if, if I said to you, like, I've looked at your DNA mm-hmm. after you signed the paperwork, hopefully, not just right. coming out of nowhere, hey, I looked at your DNA. And it said, like, well, I, we think that there's a better than 50% chance that you have a genetic makeup that would make you ideal for running marathons. Would that, now it's not guaranteed. I'm being upfront about sort of the, the stats involved. Like, would that change your 
behavior? Would you think like, man, I'm really going to start, go out and run a 5K this weekend and then start getting ready for the New York Marathon next year? I don't think I would. Maybe it's just me personally. That's something that doesn't motivate me particularly. I don't know. There's there's certain, I know there's companies out there that'll do things like say you're more likely to have X disease or more likely to have X cause of death down the line. That kind of stuff scares me. What also worries me is this is like a kind of a, a frontier that we haven't really been to before. And without regulation around it, without like controls around it, there's a lot that can go wrong. We imagine the reaction people have had to Facebook data being stolen or inadequate controls around just basic personal identification information. This is information that I'm a little bit nervous having out in the hands of other people. You know, this is immutable. This is not stuff that I can change. If there's companies out there that have this, I'm just, I'm just nervous about what might happen if that information leaks out. Well, I think you're describing a crisp downside to this, which is that like this information gets out and maybe my insurance gets messed up or, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what in the future. But that's pretty fuzzy. Like if it was a situation where, Chris, there's a better than 50% chance that you're in the high risk heart attack group. Like we don't know for sure. And there's a bunch of other complicating factors, but generally with the best scientific knowledge we have today, there's a better than 50% chance that lifestyle choices, whatever they are, you're going to be at a higher risk for heart attacks. Like, would you want to know that information? I suppose. Yeah. I think I see the point of it being a powerful motivator to make the changes that you probably should have been making anyway. It's kind of confirming things that people might already have an inkling towards. Like if, if I thought maybe, you know, oh, you know, I, I haven't been feeling well recently or I'm not particularly fit. And then this kind of compounds on top of it, that might influence a decision that I would make. I mean, I, th- I think exactly to that point though, is you're going to go out and try and verify that. That's one data marker, but then you're going to go out and, you know, talk to a doctor. Hey, what does my cholesterol look like? You're going to get on one of the uh, the tests and kind of get some of that validation. And that, that would kind of goes back to my point is it is one indicator. It's, you know, one piece of information. It could be good, but I wouldn't base your entire life around that. You want to get that type of validation. You want to have that extra info. And of course, eating a healthier diet is probably going to be okay. And having the information might lead to that. But again, I wouldn't, you know, rewrite your life based on one indicator, I guess. So you're saying buy several of these genetic tests that are all kind of sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, at least, right, that works. That's more know. data points. That's a advocate here. How many people you think are going to have that mindset of, oh, the DNA isn't conclusive, where we've kind of been taught that, you know, that's sort of the, the be all end all right there. You know, people hear the, the term DNA, they think that this is, there's no doctor that's going to be better at diagnosing than that because it's. You can look at anybody's DNA or their health. And if you probe long enough, you're likely going to find a problem. Also to Mike's point about, oh, maybe your, your fibers are inclined to help you be a better distance runner. We've seen that with in, even in movies where some people are naturally talented at certain things, but just because you're talented at a certain something, it's not what makes that person's heart sing either. Even though I think we're trying to assess everybody's DNA and hopefully find more information, there's also a human intangible quality that DNA can't convey to us that's satisfying. Okay, so we have wonderful new technology and we're enthusiastic about it. But I think a byproduct of being connected all the time is that users are all under surveillance, everyone. It's a vital part of security because we'll need audit trails when there's a security incident. But we don't talk about how surveillance can impact users because some of this surveillance is already embedded in our lives in a way that we're not aware of. And that surveillance and that data, it's fed into algorithms that are used to assess our personality and character. And it reminds me of the fear that people have with, say, for instance, our previous story about DNA. Someone takes our DNA data and 
and feeds it into an algorithm that's assessing everything about us without context. And I just, I think it's interesting that we're finally seeing articles about this, that all of this surveillance can make us anxious. And it's like we're taking a test all the time without knowing it and having a machine assess who we are as unique individuals all the time. How have you been synthesizing this as it relates to your own lives and as it relates to security? Because there's an important element of surveillance that is required for protecting certain people, protecting data, protecting your money at the bank. You need to know who has access to something and who's been touching all of these important data points or, or money at the bank. We're describing it as surveillance in sort of a general way, but I think it really comes down to consent and controls, that you consent and have good knowledge about when you're being surveilled and to what purpose that's being put to. And then in terms of controls, I see this more as there still needs to be the ability to hit the off switch or for a manual intervention. I think we may have talked about it on the podcast before. There was the developer who got let go from the company and then hired back as a contractor. And because of how they had their single sign-on set up, they had never had that happen before. They basically had him sit in the office for like months paying him by the hour because they couldn't give him access back because everything was automated. And so, you know, it's a pretty lightweight consequence. And he probably got to spend a lot of time on Reddit and paid well for it. But still, not what you would want out of the system. Like it's not a benefit. It's not a value. It's not more secure because of that. I view it much more in that way that you need to know what's going on and there needs to be still some way to manually change what's happening. So I think kind of address the situation. I think, you know, us in security kind of realized to a certain degree that, you know, maybe the only thing that's still private anymore is the inside of our heads because we leave so many digital footprints and it's so hard to disconnect from that. And, you know, the, the pervasiveness of technology and just going out. And to a certain extent, there's a little bit of a trade-off. But I think as people realize it and we see more of these uh, articles, the big data breaches, I think it can be kind of a, to use the, the term we see a lot lately, is a chilling effect. People are more apprehensive to maybe speak their minds or stand up for something because they're worried about the you know ramifications. You see people getting doxxed all the time for doing whatever. And I'm not taking judgments on anything like that, but it's a real fear is having your personal information dumped out there. And it's scary. And I think people are, are kind of waking up to that there is so much data out there about us and we've willingly given it away for the pretty long time. Return for something, you know, Facebook or Google or whoever to connect with people and share pictures. And we've given away a lot of that information. I guess I think about it in two ways. There's going to be obviously the physical camera surveillance that there is. And as somebody who lives in New York City, I've almost forgotten that that's, that's the norm. It's absolutely happening every time I step outside of a building. I mean, there's cameras literally everywhere. There's networks of them basically to, to kind of to see what's going on in there, especially because I'm so close to Times Square. I'm, I'm sure that there's, you know, eyes trained, not necessarily on me, but on the population at large in, in, in most situations. But I think this article talked a bit more about the, the term surveillance is, is not just cameras watching you, but just the ac- actions you're taking in like online. A lot more about being surveilled in terms of ad trackers, in terms of your behavior being turned into data and, and used for marketing, that sort of stuff. And um, it's a little bit less obvious, I think, to most people that that's occurring. I mean, you see, if you use Gmail, you'll see at the top, um, clearly there's ads that are tailored to you and based off of either queries that you've made or sites you've been to and that sort of stuff. I don't think that piece of it makes me as nervous. I think the the idea of, well, I say this, I look to my left and I see Google Home and I look to my right and I see uh, Amazon, I see Alexa. I guess what I'm saying is maybe I should actually take this into more account. Maybe I'm more anxious than I realize. They're everywhere. And it says it's like a paranoid thing to say, but I'm realizing it's, it's a more and more invasive piece of my life as I explain. And finally, I thought the following article we're about to talk about, it 
was such a clickbaity article, but it was such big news, we can talk about it, where a Japanese minister in charge of the country's cybersecurity says he has never used a computer. And some can argue that as long as you have an idea of security, you can hire people smarter than you to do the job. And isn't cybersecurity just a digital form of human security, for instance, like at a bank or secret service protecting the president because the bad guy only needs to be right once. All you really need to do is apply concepts in security to a digital format and have someone super responsible and someone super smarter than you to to manage it all. You know, I'm the one that suggested this article because I thought it was funny. And like, oh, this guy, he, he doesn't use computers and he's in charge of cybersecurity. But now I feel bad. I wonder if he's actually like more advanced. If he has like Alexa set up where he's just like, Alexa, firewall the country. Or he's got like a super advanced like VR headset that he uses for, you know, going in and configuring the firewalls for the country. I'm not shocked. You know, I've seen plenty of times that it doesn't necessarily matter um, as long as he's surrounding himself with the, you know, the right people to advise him on things. You know, sometimes good leadership is is enough in those cases, having a clear vision and kind of cutting through the minutiae. I don't know if that's the case. You know, maybe that's enough. Maybe he is able to, you know, find those intangibles and people or find the right people, the right skills to satisfy the needs that he has, um, as long as he sets a good direction. And, uh, you know, I've seen other times where the leadership is super technical and that also works in completely different ways. So I agree. It's kind of funny. And it's, you know, one of those things that as says tech and security people go, oh, yeah, of course, that you know, a non-technical guy is leading it. But I guess it really depends. There's a lot of context. It might not at the end of the day matter if he has the right people around him that that understand it and can advise him and then he can give him guidance. It's sort of uh, a great area there, really. I mean, if, if someone's able to manage a team of people that have those skills, it's obviously well and good. And, and probably, you know, in, in depending on the situation, can you can get away with that. I don't think that it's a, a good look for them necessarily to have them ask, you know, is it a good idea to allow use of USB keys? And the guy have no idea what that is either. I think there should be at least a baseline level of knowledge about what this stuff is that they should have. At least from the, if he's going to be somebody who's making public statements and open to that kind of scrutiny, maybe you need to have at least a background in it to answer those kind of questions. But beyond that, I think Killian has a good point about the, the people who are actually configuring security and, and making the doing the ground level work there. Obviously, in managerial positions, they're probably distanced a bit from the actual work, just at least a little bit. But I still think there should be something that they knew. I wouldn't be thrilled uh, if I found that out and I was a citizen of Japan. But on the positive side, no one has air gapped their life as much as this gentleman. So nothing is getting through to him. I was just going to say, maybe he wants to take his, uh, try his hand, you know, first foray into this is um, configuring some uh, BGP routing, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, do we have a tool of the week? Yes. This is a neat tool called X. SS strike. So this is a Python script that is for brute forcing and testing a site for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. And so this is situations where you're able to submit information to a site and use that in such a way that it gets past the filters to pull out, you know, information where you wouldn't be able to get it from otherwise. A lot of times this is used to try to get into, say, like an intranet from an external site, something like that. So what I like about this, it's a standalone tool. It's not a plug into something else you can download it and try it right now entirely free and it's something that affects lots and lots of sites so if you are trying to do something like harden a web application or just want to test it against your own site it's a great place to start xss strike 
Thanks to Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Take care.